We're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then verse 14 that we'll be looking at this morning and then we'll respond. Uh, we'll have responsive uh, at the end. I will read uh, from Psalm 119 and you will respond. Hear God's word from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. As we come to God's word this morning, would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come, come with power, power to transform this morning. For if we come to your word and we open it, and yet you don't come with power, this exercise is in futility. And so we ask that you would stir our sleeping hearts, encourage us this morning, let us see the beauty of your truth and your law that we might come to delight in it. This might only come about by your Spirit's work, so we pray dependently upon it this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, if you've ever been scuba diving, you know what an incredible experience it can be to enjoy the creativity, the beauty of what God has created underneath the ocean. You get to see the marine life that you otherwise can't see on the top of the surface. And so scuba diving provides you with this new freedom to experience this new world underneath the sea. But with this new freedom comes parameters and guidelines. You have to know how to use your scuba diving equipment. You have to know how to regulate, to use the regulator to breathe and how to breathe. You have to know how to unstop your ears and adjust to the pressure as you dive deeper into the water. You have to know how to communicate with your dive buddies that are down there with you in case there's danger or there's a problem. And you have to know how to come up to the surface slowly so you don't get the bends on the rise back to the surface. But if you follow these guidelines, you get to experience the cool marine life and the sea creatures that are under the ocean and the coral reefs and the colorful sponges that are there. But on the other hand, if you disregard these guidelines, you are stuck underneath the water with 30 pounds of equipment strapped to you and a lot can go wrong. See, with any new freedom, there comes parameters, guidelines, in order to enjoy this freedom to its fullest extent. And this is no less true with the idea of sex as we come to the seventh commandment this morning. Now, just the mention of the word sex can elicit strong responses. For some, it evokes something very uncomfortable, especially many of you thinking from one of your pastors this morning. It can invoke embarrassment. It can invoke excitement. And still for others, that word can evoke and stir up a past that is filled with shame and a lot of regret. Sex is everywhere in our culture. There's an obsession with sex. We see it displayed in almost every TV show and movie that hits the theaters. Right? It's plastered on billboards and on the internet. The sex industry and pornography is a $15 billion industry just in the United States alone. That's more than the four popular TV networks and their revenue combined. And when it comes within the church, 
The topic of sex is not often discussed, but yet the obsession still remains. Because in many ways, as Christians, we've elevated this command over other commands as if you commit sexual sin, it is far worse than other sins. And some hold that purity is the pathway to joy and happiness in life. And not only is this not true, but this mentality makes sex into an idol. Marriage and sex is not the ultimate goal in life. Jesus dispelled this idea in the fact that he was single and celibate and yet was lacking in absolutely nothing. And so as we come to the seventh commandment, we read this morning, you shall not commit adultery. So all sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is forbidden. Now our culture, and to millennials, especially in teenagers, this sounds not only archaic, but unfairly restrictive. See, in a survey done a few years ago by the National Association of Evangelicals said that 44% of millennial professing believers had engaged in premarital sex. More and more Christians are following the secular trends when it comes to the idea of sex. And in order to reverse these alarming trends among professing Christians and to understand what the Scriptures say about sex, we have to be willing to have open, frank discussions about the topic. Because if we're embarrassed or we're uncomfortable to talk about sex or because of past trauma and shame, it's because we're not viewing sex in the way that God views it. God says that sex is good. He created it. And so therefore, it is good. And you may not have realized it, but the Bible actually opens and closes with the idea of marital intimacy. We go back to the beginning of Genesis 2. We read that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, and Adam sings this love song to his bride as they engage in intimacy and they become one flesh. And then we go to the end of Revelation in chapter 19. We read about the marriage feast of the Lamb united to his bride. Or you can go to the Song of Solomon, if you dare, which is an erotic love poem describing the intimacy between a husband and his wife that will make you blush. The Bible's not ashamed of sex. And so as we look at the seventh commandment, we're going to do so this morning under three headings. First, God's good gift of sex. Next, the abuse of God's good gift. And then finally, gospel hope for the adulterous heart. Now, if we're honest, we struggle to believe that the seventh commandment really is good. Because our society tells us that real freedom is found in indulging in the desires of the flesh. If you have the desire, pursue it. If it feels good, do it. And we often buy into this idea. But what we'll see this morning in this commandment is that God is actually guarding the beauty and the freedom of sex. He's not limiting it. Shortly after God created man, the pinnacle of his creation, he saw that it wasn't good that man was alone, and so he created a companion, a helper for Adam. And then he performed the first wedding in history. In Genesis 2, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Now that phrase, hold fast, it connotes this union between a husband and a wife. 
It's the description of a relationship that is more intimate and more connected than any other relationship in the world. More than love between siblings or between parents and their children. The marriage relationship was created to be body with body and soul with soul. And it's, in, it's a bond, deep, intimate love, mutual trust between a husband and a wife. And so what we read here in Genesis 2 is that only when you leave behind past relationships, including with parents, and you bind yourself to another in the covenant of marriage, only then is there the context for sexual intimacy. Sex is a vital part of God's good design for marriage. There's several purposes that God has given sex and intends for sex to serve inside the marriage covenant. First, God's created sex for procreation. After he created Adam and Eve and he gives them this mandate, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They're to populate his creation. Sex in marriage makes good on this mandate. And in the context, in this context, sex is a picture of love and valuing the life of another and bringing another life into the world. But not only is sex for procreation, it's also intended for recreation. Sex can be fun. God created it means it was meant to be enjoyed. It was given for pleasure within the bond of marriage. Song of Solomon, the beginning says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. This is passionate love and dialogue between a husband and a wife. Sex is intended for pleasure, and we don't get to change that reality. And so this means that outside the context of marriage, sex is still enjoyable and fun. And anyone singles who tells you it's not is lying. But it has devastating consequences when taken outside of its intended context, as we'll see in just a moment. Given procreation, for recreation, but it's also given to communicate something very profound in the marriage relationship. See, sex is the the relational currency that communicates deep affection and devotion for a husband to his bride and a bride to her husband. When a husband and a wife come together, they're binding themselves in every single way imaginable. Emotionally, Financially, spiritually, and physically. They become one flesh, we're told. God gives sex and marriage to communicate what is exactly true about the marriage relationship. This is why the wedding ceremony, though true in the eyes of the state, is made real and consummated on the honeymoon. It's a husband and a wife saying to one another, I belong to you exclusively and to no one else. It's a physical depiction of total permanent binding of one person to another. And Paul speaks of this profound reality in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Paul is speaking of the powerful nature of sex and its binding two individuals into one. And this mystical union that happens between two people in the act of sex happens whether we intend it or desire it to or not. It is as God's design. 
You know, I use Gorilla Glue epoxy uh, to fix you know, small things around the house because that's about the extent of my uh, handyman uh, nest. And it will bind a lot of things. Take a broken leg on a chair and put it on the leg of the chair and put it back together and it'll bind it. Now, I don't have a clue the chemical makeup and compound of Gorilla Glue. But my not understanding how it works doesn't negate the fact that it works to bind things together. And the same is true with sex. Because of the binding nature of sex, when you freely give your body to someone else, you are communicating promises to that person, whether you desire to or not. It communicates to the other person, I'm yours and you're mine. And furthermore, it communicates that I'm going to be with you for the rest of your life. I'm committed to you. And so this is the reason why any sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage is ultimately a lie. Because you're communicating promises with your body, saying that you're committed to that person. But if you're merely dating that person, or you're merely hooking up with that person, it's a lie. This is why there's so much insecurity and uncertainty in dating relationships where sex is involved. Because the relationship is built on the foundation of something that is not true. That person you're dating has every right to leave you in a few months and find someone else to date. And when the couple does break up, this is why it often feels like a mini-divorce. Why? Because you made promises to that other person engaging in sex that the relationship itself can't sustain. And so you're left feeling angry, abandoned, used, and deeply insecure. Sex outside of marriage creates this indelible scars that last long after the act itself. It's incredibly powerful and communicates promises, whether we realize it or want it to or not. Lastly, God has given sex as an object lesson to point us to a greater reality. Ephesians 5, Paul speaks about marriage and refers to something more profound. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Sex ultimately communicates who God is and his unwavering love for it, his union with his children. It points to the manner in which Jesus loves his bride that he's wed himself to, the church. And the love that Jesus has for his beloved children is so astounding that he brings a heavenly reality down to a earthly reality in the act of sexual intimacy. And so in its proper context, it's intended to provide us a glimpse into the magnitude of Christ's love for his bride. See, we have to understand that sex is always about more than just the act itself. Because the longing of every human heart is to experience intimacy. It is to be laid bare before another and known by another at our deepest core and to be loved and valued and accepted. That's what every one of us longs for. And wedding himself to us, Christ is saying, I'm here, I'm never going to leave you because I love you with an unending love. So you'll never understand why God freely gives the good gift of sex in the context of marriage until you understand the purposes for sex. 
Well, next we need to recognize how we abuse this good gift that God has given. Now, adultery in the Old Testament was a capital offense and punishable by death. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he comes not to throw the law away, but to fulfill the law. And we read, as we read earlier from Matthew 5, he actually ups the stakes on the law. He says in uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And while adultery is sex by a married person with someone else who's not your spouse, Jesus now broadens this scope to expose the idea of sexual sin that is the lust of the heart. It runs much deeper than the act itself. If we go back to Ephesians 5, Paul says that anyone who abuses or even jokes about sex and not having any inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's a very strong language. Verse 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, if we abuse God's good gift of sex, which is the symbol of intimacy, how can we expect to experience intimacy with God who is the object of that symbol? Paul says you can't. When something as powerful and as potent as sex is abused or misused, it becomes distorted and therefore very dangerous. This is why lust and pornography are so detrimental. Think of what happens when you lust after another. And I'm not talking about attraction and thinking someone is attractive. Lust takes an individual and uses them in their mind and in their heart for their own selfish desires. Instead of using sex in the context as an expression of love for your spouse, you play out fantasies to gratify your own desires, using that individual in your mind, in your heart. And pornography, which continues to be on the rise among men as well as women and youth, pornography is adultery of the heart. By engaging in pornographic material, you're taking an image that you don't relate to, that you don't love in any way, and you're using it for your own purposes. And this undermines the purpose of sex within the marriage relationship because sex is giving yourself to the other person, your spouse. And pornography is about no one but the one who's engaging in it. It's about me and what I want and what I can get. Our culture, though, it advertises it's harmless. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no ill effects to it. It promises increased enjoyment of sex, but it actually has the exact opposite effect. And research shows that viewing pornography actually causes you to have more fragmented relationships rather than more engagement in your relationships. Because real relationships involve work, as we all know. Forgiveness. Generosity, self-sacrifice. Pornography involves none of those. And as you indulge in this, soon you become isolating from others, especially your spouse, as you continue to have to hide the secret sin in the dark so that no one knows. And it breeds disengagement, distance in the marriage relationship, especially in the marriage bed. And pornography is ripping marriages apart left and right. 
And it's devastating the lives of teenagers, singles, who many of which will one day walk down the aisle carrying the fallout of porn's destructive effects naively as they walk through the, to the aisle to meet their spouse, only to see it play out in their marriage. And ladies, I realize that maybe pornography and lust of the eyes may not be where you struggle in the area of sexual sin. Maybe your struggle is carrying around the shame of not living up to the sex life that you think your husband dreamed of. Or maybe your temptation is towards discontentment with your husband and within your marriage. And so your lustful thoughts take the shape of, I wonder what their marriage is like. I wonder if he treats her better than my husband treats me. But these thoughts are equally as damaging within the marriage relationship. See, any sexual behavior outside the parameters that God has defined, whether it's imaginative, whether it's extramarital sex, whether it is sex before marriage, whether it is misuse of sex in the marriage relationship, it is all a mockery of God and His good gift. Because it says to the other person, I'm committed to you with my body, but I'm not committed to you for the rest of your life. I just want to use you for what I can gain. C.S. Lewis speaks to this idea when he says this. He says, The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which was intended to go along with it and make up the total union. See, the power of sex is maintained in the sacredness of it. Otherwise, sex is simply trying to enjoy the covenant without any of the responsibilities of the marriage covenant. And it doesn't work that way. Though the world wants us to believe the lie that sex is not this powerful. But God has designed it as such. I want to say something briefly to those maybe who have experienced abuse in the past. Because there's no doubt that there are those here who have experienced things that have happened to them against their will. And the way that purity is idolized in our culture within the church, it's probably left you feeling like you're damaged goods and you're unworthy of being loved and accepted. I want you first to hear that it is not your fault what has happened to you. And you need to hear that, you need to internalize that, and you need to own that. But next, I want you to hear and know that God hates what has happened to you. And he's hated it so much that he actually came down himself personally to do something about it. Because in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he was taken advantage of. He was abused at the cross. So he knows what you're walking through. He knows the grief and the shame and the guilt that you experience. And he's willing to walk with you down that path to restoration, however long that takes. He's committed himself to you. He will not leave you. But here's the reality. There's not one of us in this room that is not sexually broken. None of us are exempt. Therefore, we all must grasp the gospel hope for the adulterous heart. There's a band, Mumford and Sons, had a song several years ago called White Blank Page. And the opening lyrics to the song begin like this. It says, Can you lie next to her and give her your heart? as well as your body. And can you lie next to her and confess your love as well as your folly? And can you kneel before the king and say, I'm clean? The reality is, 
Not one of us can kneel before King Jesus and say that we are, we are clean from this sin. Because the command, you shall not commit adultery, is not given in case we might commit it. It's given to show us that we are guilty of committing it in thought and or action. Every one of us. Our sexual brokenness runs deep in our hearts. So that it can be difficult to root out. And this is why Jesus goes beyond suggesting that we just grit our teeth and fight against temptation of sexual immorality or we just need to change our behavior a little bit. He doesn't say that these are the antidotes to dealing with sexual immorality. Back in Matthew 5, he says, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin, he says, tear it out, cut it off. It's far better that you lose a limb or an eye than to have your whole body go into hell. So Jesus is showing us the seriousness of of how we must proactively engage and be putting sin to death before it kills us. See, because sex is so powerful, we should expect and anticipate being tempted and being attracted to things that God prohibits. It shouldn't surprise us at all. And we have to realize that adultery and other sexual sin begins not with the act itself. It begins far earlier than that. It begins with the eyes. Seemingly innocent glances, conversations with someone who's not your spouse. And then it slowly progresses to you trying to manipulate situations to be around that person more and more. Because they make you feel good, they make you feel valued. You feel like they're filling up what is lacking in your marriage. And then it progresses to the point of the act. To where you've committed full-blown adultery. Though you'd already committed it in your heart long before. And the progression of pornography works the same way. It gradually graduates up to greater degrees. No one sets out to commit adultery or get addicted to pornography. It's gradual. And James says that temptation gives way to desire. And that desire then gives birth to sin. And that sin ultimately leads to destruction and death. So Jesus calls us to take whatever drastic measures necessary to fight against sexual immorality. So for some of us, that means we don't take our phones with us into our bedroom at night because of where that might lead. For others of us, that means we stop watching our favorite TV show or certain movies that can lead us to struggle and be tempted. For some, it means pulling the computer out into the middle of the room instead of being in the office or in your bedroom and putting safeguards on the computer for accountability. For those of you dating, it means that you don't spend extensive time alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It means you don't go to lunch or ride in the car, even for work purposes, with somebody of the opposite sex alone. We have to do whatever it takes to combat temptation. It also means that we practice vulnerability. That we allow trusted people into our lives to speak truth and to help us so that God can use them as an asset against our, in our fight and our battle against sin. Someone we can call, we can text in the moment of temptation and ask them to pray with us, to remind us of God's promises. We have to ask ourselves if these measures, no matter how inconvenient or drastic they may seem, are they worth implementing so that we don't find ourselves in the fire of hell that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5? But we can't simply stop. 
of putting safeguards in place is important and as necessary as those things are. We have to go underneath the surface and see what's driving our behavior towards sexual sin. We're tempted towards lusting after another, towards committing adultery, towards engaging in pornography, towards using words or even our body in ways that are not honoring to God. We have to ask, what is motivating that? We have to recognize that sex in those moments is trying to be the God that we worship and bow down to. It's not just hormones that drive us to sexual sin. We're in search of something. We're in search of acceptance, pleasure, satisfaction, intimacy. But what we're ultimately longing for can never be found in sex, no matter how many times we go back to that well. It will only leave us discouraged or at worst in bondage and addicted. Sex was never meant and had the capacity to satisfy our longing hearts. We have to name our sexual sins for whatever they may be and repent of our attempts to try to find love and satisfaction through sexual morality. We have to own our brokenness and admit our need for a Savior. And this means admitting the adultery that maybe you had in the past that you've never told anyone. It means sharing your struggle with lust and pornography and and maybe admitting for the first time that you're addicted to pornography and calling it what it is. Admitting your struggle with same-sex attraction. Bringing it into the light and confessing that. And then we have to answer a very important question. What do I do in my shame? Because I feel like a failure. I feel dirty. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we read that as Adam and Eve sinned, it says their eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked. They experienced shame because of their sin. And it's interesting that when you go and read Matthew and Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion, they insert this detail that when Jesus was beaten, he was stripped naked. Why is that detail included? Well, because at the cross, the one who had nothing to be ashamed of became shame. He took on our shame. He did so in order to turn us from unfaithful to faithful worshipers. To turn us from idolaters to true worshipers of himself. And to turn us from adulterers to lovers of himself. If you're in Christ, there's no shame left for you to carry. Because Christ has borne it for you at the cross. It's been dealt with. Now for those of you that feel as though you are not worthy of being loved because of what you have done sexually in your past or what's been done to you, you need to know that Christ went to the cross for your sake so that you can experience forgiveness. So that you could be restored completely and so that you can have the lover that you've been in search of all your life through other created things. God's grace is much greater than any sexual sin or past that you have been through that you think disqualifies you from God's love. That God never tries to shame us out of our sin. He loves us out of it with an unending love. We have to see that whatever we've been searching for in sex has ultimately already been given to us freely through Jesus Christ. It is ours at His expense. 
And when you understand that in Christ, you have the one who's the only true lover that you need. And then in Christ, you have the one who's exclusively wed himself to you, who will not leave you. Then you understand his love and his righteousness that covers you. And it frees you to live a chaste life. Because you see that he's a God who gives good gifts. And he's doing what is best for you. See, Christ is washing his bride and he's preparing us for the day of the wedding feast when we will on that day experience soul-satisfying intimacy and pleasure that we've been longing for for all eternity, unending. And Isaiah says, those who wait and those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. See, the cross is our assurance that in the heat and fight of the battle that we have the Holy Spirit who will renew us day in and day out, giving us everything necessary to battle against this war that is waging in our heart while we wait and hope for his return. So just as Jesus said to the woman that was caught in adultery, so he says to all who are in Christ this morning, I do not condemn you. You're forgiven. You're mine. Now go. Sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this whole topic stirs up much in our own hearts for we are guilty in being adulterers, going after other lovers than the true lover who has given himself for us. Lord, thank you that there is forgiveness in the blood of Christ that covers a multitude of sins. Lord, would you show us and help us to believe that we are worthy of love because you have loved us by putting your son on the cross so that we can experience the intimacy that we long for. Lord, may we not look for the created thing, whether sex or any other thing, to fill what only you can fill. And would you give us the grace and the power by your spirit to fight this battle as we do wait for the day that you return and we experience unadulterated with, without any obstacle the unending favor of our Savior in His presence forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.